Today's guest, Natalie Carpenter, will share with us her story about infertility. Natalie is a former corporate luxury brand marketer at brands like Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Grey Goose, Vodka, and she left a very exciting career path after discovering her purpose during her fertility journey. Natalie will share her story and the pain and the hope, and um, her story does have a an ending that is joyful uh, with the birth of a child. Uh, and before we dive into hearing from Natalie, which is an episode that um, I think gives a lot of hope, one of the things that came across in the episode is that for everyone, their journey of having kids, and especially those that struggle with infertility, every story is so very unique and different from one another. Some stories do end really well. Others uh, end in a way that um, that don't bring children. And I think through Natalie's lens and her work, she's been able to become a guide for so many people. And we do want to acknowledge that some of our listeners and even people that I personally am connected with, their stories of infertility are not ones that end with having kids. And uh, this topic will be uh, really difficult to listen to. I strongly recommend that you do create the space. I think there's just so much that Natalie's story will bring to everyone that's on this journey. Um, But you might want to think about where you're going to be doing it um, and creating some space for you to be able to process uh, some of your raw emotions and hearing uh, this story unfold. One other comment is that you may not relate to this topic at all. you may be single and not want kids. You may have had kids and had no issues at all. But I would encourage you to also listen to this episode because so much that uh, unfolds as we talk through everything is how to be an advocate, how to be there for people that are going through uh, difficulties getting pregnant or carrying a child to term. And so I think that there's a lot to the story that can be related to as we think about those that are in our circle and how to care for one another in a difficult conversation. Next week is National Infertility Awareness Week. It's part of the reason why we wanted to share Natalie's story today. And next week, we actually have a different perspective of someone who has been on an infertility journey. We'll share their story, their experiences, uh, someone else that we can learn from, someone whose story also ends with a birth, so a moment of joy. And in May, a third couple that we were able to meet that had an infertility story that did not end with a birth. Uh, Their story was evolved into a story of adoption, and they'll share their experiences of the highs and the lows of going through that process. So Natalie and her work today supports women's reproductive health awareness and specifically serves the fertility wellness community. In addition to speaking about various topics related to fertility, wellness, and infertility, Natalie has built a community through her blog platform, Fertilust. And later this year, Natalie will also be launching a Women's Reproductive Health Collaborative. So thank you for joining us here, and thank you, Natalie, for joining us on The Third Place as we hear your story about infertility. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. 
It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, empowering, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. So we have brought on Natalie to talk about infertility as well as IVF, a conversation that I'm sure many of us maybe know someone that has been in this journey or experienced it ourselves. but we definitely believe that it is an awkward conversation. And I'm wondering, you know, just to like launch from that place, can you tell us about your experience with infertility and your journey from that place so that we can start to like navigate these conversations better from with a little bit of guidance from you. Sure. That would be my pleasure. And first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. Thanks for being on. I feel like this is such an important topic to talk about. So to that end, uh, my experience, I sort of fell into infertility. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I just thought that all of the usual things and the the sequence that everyone talks about would happen. I got married. I thought, okay, when I'm ready to start a family and, and to start trying, things will happen. I didn't think that there would be any sort of issue or there would be any sort of delay. I certainly didn't think that I was going to have to see a specialist to help me along that way. So after about six, eight months of not, not trying, I had a girlfriend that asked me if, you know, we were planning on having children and I said, yes. And she said, well, perhaps it would be a really good idea if you went and saw a specialist because you're in your thirties now. And just to see if there's if, if everything is okay and, and that there's not anything that you may need to take care of, just to make sure that everything's okay, there's no issue. And I thought, okay, sure, that sounds fine. So my first step was to go see her reproductive endocrinologist, otherwise known as a fertility doctor or a fertility specialist. And in that conversation, I just sort of fell into the world of fertility, infertility, knowing what I know now, I would have done things differently. And we can certainly talk about that in a bit. But my journey was such that I saw this doctor, he proposed an invasive surgery with not really any evidence as to why I should have a surgery. And that scared me. So I sought a second opinion. All of a sudden, I had a second fertility doctor started doing IUIs and with that experience got a pretty heavy dosage of some medicine that created a cyst, which was very painful and kind of took me out of the running in terms of doing any other fertility treatments for a while. So I switched doctors within the practice, namely not because I didn't like the doctor, but because the nurse who was my lifeline just wasn't my person and just wasn't giving me the answers that I felt like I needed. And I felt so desperate that I just 
change doctors because I wanted a new nurse. I'm not familiar with the term IUI. And if anyone that maybe has not gone down this journey, what is that? It means intrauterine insemination. Mm. Got it. Otherwise known as the turkey. The turkey. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's what most people kind of call it. <laughs> that was my first foray into fertility. And I did two of those. And after that point, um, and, and realizing that the, the clinic that I was at was rather unorganized and kept setting me back to the original doctor and the original nurse, I, it, it just it, it drove me insane. I didn't have it in me to stay with that practice. So I left that practice. I went to a private practice because I no longer wanted to feel like a number and went on to do two IVFs, my first two IVFs with this clinic. And I was told everything looks great. This is going to be easy. You're a great candidate. We're going to have zero problems. All things that a doctor should really never say, knowing what I know now. I did two IVFs that were both non-starters. In other words, they, they, we did the retrieval. We did the retrieval is effectively when they, they go in and they harvest your, your eggs. Right. And the next step would be to fertilize the eggs with the male's sperm, whether it's your, you know, partners or a donor or what have you. And so I did the first bit of that. And then what happened is after the eggs fertilized, the cells did not continue to multiply and divide and they didn't form into embryos beyond like the third or fourth day. And the practice that I was at really wanted to see day five, six, seven day embryos so that we could then send them out to the labs to genetically test them. Hmm. There's some research that shows a higher correlation of a pregnancy resulting from eggs that have been, or excuse me, embryos that have been genetically tested. And as I was now in, in my, you know, mid late thirties, they felt like this was the best case and the best sort of route to go. So I did two IVFs with zero embryos to speak of much unlike what the expectation that I had been given was. And my doctor said, I will never forget this. My doctor called me. I was in the middle of a business conference. I snuck out into the bathroom to take this phone call. And she told me that my second IVF had failed. And she thought that I should do a third IVF with her. But if I failed again, she didn't think that she could help me. Wow. I have so much to to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> this whole story, I'm just going to say, like, to me, all of it is horrific. Every yeah. single step of the way is like, what, what, what? Well, like, you know, the first thing that like stuck with me is that I was fascinated that the first step was that you went to a doctor. So you like went down that path it sounds like without having tried naturally prior, is that true? You were just kind of thinking preventatively? I was, and I was not trying, right? I, I 
it wasn't like I didn't time my ovulation or anything. Sure. Like that. But now looking back again, I, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Exactly. And then how I just loved how you said that you fell into fertility because I'm hearing how like through this, that it was, it was like suddenly, you know, one day it wasn't a thing. And the next day you had learned an entirely new language. 100%. And by the time I was in the IVF sequence, we're talking almost three years later. So all of a sudden, here I am, I'm doing IVFs. And at that point of being with my fourth doctor, who basically was breaking up with me, I felt like, well, you're not going to break up with me. I'm going to break up with you first. And so I ghosted her because that's, you know, apparently what we do when we feel this, you know, emotionally attached to something, or that's what I did anyway. And I took a break. I needed to take a break. I realized that something wasn't working. I wasn't sure if it was my job. I wasn't sure if it was, you know, the stress associated with it. I wasn't sure if it was something I was doing. I I harbored a lot of, you know, internal questioning, guilt, shame for all of the things. And so I felt like I really needed to get my head on straight and be a part of the game because before I had truly just been outsourcing it, I had thought you're going to get me pregnant and I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to do my job. Well, I'm going to, you know, be hopefully an awesome wife and I'm going to you know, be, you know, a great friend and you know, have my social life and not miss a beat on dinners and drinks and all the things I, I just didn't think that, I've truly had to be that actively involved. All I thought that I had to do was take a bunch of shots and that these incredible doctors would just help me get pregnant. And then nobody would have to know about it. I didn't want anybody to know about it. Right. Well, and so, so you didn't want anyone to know about it, therefore weren't able to process out loud with people that were close to you, except for your husband. And I got to imagine that there's also like you, you set these standards. Well, this allows me to, you know, I, to be the great wife, to be all the normal quote unquote things. You almost were missing that mark of expectation. So I would imagine there's also these feelings of rejection or you're not, or failure, even as a, a woman, you know, what were those feelings? So much of that. I felt like I was a rock star at work and that this was a new job that I had that I was failing at. And I couldn't do it. I didn't understand why it was apparently so easy. And we talk about how easy it is to get pregnant. In fact, you know, I don't know about you, but growing up, my first experience learning about everything and, and, you know, women's reproductive health in general was from my PE teacher, my physical education teacher in eighth grade. And she sat us down and told us that if we kissed a boy, let alone had sex, (laughs) we would either get pregnant or an STD and maybe die of AIDS, right? That was what we were told. And so I remember having conversations with my girlfriends about like, 
oh my gosh, I don't want to kiss the boy because wow, like what if I get pregnant? I mean, like there was just, totally. there was no actual discussion about how a baby is made. And those weren't discussions that I had with my parents. I didn't want to have them with my parents. <laughs> yeah. So, so like then suddenly you're, you're like, you know, catapulted into this world of, um, some core beliefs that you had defined back in eighth grade that are suddenly like, wait, it's not only not easy, it's really hard. And, you know, for us, like we didn't have issues getting pregnant, but we had issues staying pregnant. We, the end of the story we have is we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, but so many of those conversations that I'm like relating to, you know, with my wife was, um, why is it so, it is so easy for everybody. And the teenage births, right? That's the, or the teenage pregnancies rather. Yeah. And they're like, and they don't even want the kid. And then here's a whole bunch of people that do want kids and that can't have kids. And as we were struggling with our infertility, you know, those relationships was coming out of the woodwork. So there's this like huge gap of people that it was, it's like, if you didn't want kids, it was easy to get pregnant. And if you did want kids, it was not. 100%. And first of all, thank you for sharing that because I think that it's not a very common conversation to have in general, let alone with a man. So I appreciate you talking about that because it is unfortunately so much more common than we talk about it. In fact, one in eight couples, according to the CDC, will struggle with infertility. And infertility is defined as not being able to conceive a child, but that's not an accurate statement because you can have troubles conceiving. You can get help too, but you can also conceive a child and not have the child. So I think that that word is so outdated and that's a whole nother discussion that we have, but I love that the conversation is starting to happen more and more and particularly with, with men, because I think that's part of it too. And I think that's part of, of, that shame element, at least for me and going back and in my life at the time, right? I felt so guilty. I can't give my husband a child. I'm also at the point, you know, during this time that I was working in male dominated corporate America and I figured, wow, I am such a failure personally. I don't want anyone to know. It it was such a a source of shame because I wasn't living up to what I thought was my God-given right. And, you know, that was the most infuriating element of it at the time. Why is this happening to me? That's where it evolved. And and I think that that's why I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, like clearly this is, I do have some personal connection to the story through our, our pregnancies, but also not because I'm, I'm a guy. So there's only so many emotions that I can be sharing with you or relating to you with. But I think the, I think it is important to say as a man that this is an important conversation to have because of kind of the work environment, you know, that's clearly something that is all consuming of your mind. Yes, you're going to do your work. Yes, you're going to be good at that job too, but you can't separate the personal of what's going on. So how do the men in your working relationship also help create this safe space, even though it's unrelated to your work, it's it's totally related to your whole person. And that's why we need to be able to go into this uncomfortable conversation too, because it affects everybody around us. So I appreciate 
you kind of acknowledging that. And for the men out there, this is an important conversation. I, I'm glad that we're having it. And to that end, it's it, it feels like such an awkward one initially, right? Because the realm of women's you know, reproductive health and, and bodies in general, that's such a, like a strange topic, right? Like it's taboo to begin with. If you go like deep down into it, periods are considered gross, you know, like all of these things. And so we carry that into the conversation. And that's why we don't spend a lot of time having these discussions with men is because part of it is it's not so much that we don't think that we'll understand. I mean, there's an element of that, but there's also a thought of, well, we don't want to burden them or gross them out, quite frankly, with all of pieces or, or add further shame to us. And I also feel like there's something really important to share that there are men that are dealing with male factor and that's hard too. And, and they get support and that's not fair either. Right. Male factors 30 to 40% of infertility. Yeah. I was going to ask you, cause like my experience with one of my closest friends going through her second round of IVF right now, and then, you know, I like to, through this conversation, I feel like it is a spectrum, spectrum of infertility. It's not, doesn't stop at conception. It's the experience to term, right? Um, and I, I like it really protective over the women that I know that are in this, this journey. That's like the best word I can use every time. And if there's another word, like, let me know, but that's what I, my go-to is. But that I'm like, well, what's, what about the other side of the, of the puzzle, right? Like, what about, what about the role of the man or the role of the um, semen that's been chosen? Like, what about all of that? And I'm like sitting here really wanting you to touch on that side of your experience too, because it comes from this protective place that I I'm sitting with. So we didn't have a male factor experience directly. I can share that from living in the, the world in the space since all of this, since this all began, I realized that there is so much that happened in hindsight from a personal perspective, but also in, in viewing couples or, you know, other situations where there is a male factor challenge. So to that end, with, with my personal relationship, I think both of us were so focused on how I was feeling. I didn't realize that my husband was hurting at times or bad because he felt like he had to be the strong one for me. And at the same time, I didn't think to even really acknowledge it. And sometimes I even got mad because I, I thought, oh, he doesn't get it. But he was just trying to be the strong person for me. And listen, the experience can do one of two things. It can either bring a couple closer or take them apart. And in our case, it, it I feel fortunate enough to say that it brought us closer together, but it didn't dawn on me until perhaps, you know, we haven't discussed it yet, that third and then later fourth IVF cycle where I thought, oh my gosh, this is affecting you too. And it really wasn't until I started talking about it outwardly and sharing it, sharing my story and, and talking to other people and, and feeling less alone in all of it that I realized, wow, the men are getting left out of this equation. And it's twofold. It's one is because many times we're focused on, on what we're going through. We're the ones that are the human 
pin cushions and going through all of the procedures for the most part. And the men don't have to perhaps go through anything that feels quite invasive in, in, in most cases. And then the second part is also that you know, men in general don't always share their vulnerabilities. And, and so we feel at times alone thinking it's just us because they are only really just trying to support us. It's not that they are trying to do anything but support us, but it just becomes this unknown just part of the discussion, right? Like here the couple is, you know, the man is trying to, or the, the spouse in this situation is trying to be super supportive, not realizing that by being super supportive and not being vulnerable, it actually feels more alienating to the female in the relationship. So I, we felt a little bit of that in, in our relationship and we overcame it. And I feel super grateful that we did. And part of the reason we overcame it was that I told my husband between rounds, IVFs rounds two and three, that I wanted to start a blog because I wanted to find people like me that I could relate to and community. And he just thought I was nuts. He's like, you cannot air our dirty laundry. This is, you, you cannot do that. And I said, I'm a marketer. Don't you worry. No one is going to find this blog unless I want them to. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because there's this idea that, oh my gosh, if I project what I want out into the universe, if I put it online, everyone's going to find it. Not like I worked at a luxury corporate auto manufacturer. I didn't want anyone that I worked with to see this blog. I was looking for other people in the space that were going through what I was going through. And I didn't realize how many were going through it until I launched the blog. And I sent an email out to around 150 people that I, I knew, loved, trusted. And the amount of feedback that I got back was tremendous. It was, I'm going through this. I know my sister who was going through this, my best friend, et cetera. The, I couldn't believe how many people responded to me and said, me too. And that was a huge aha moment for me thinking, wow, I'm not alone. And that was the first step in sort of my healing in all of this. And that was instrumental, I believe, during that break between my second IVF and a new doctor, by the way, because I broke up with the, prop, the past one. And I believe that helped me get into a better headspace and prepped me for what became my third IVF. So it sounds like to me, because I think that this is a common theme that we're starting to like pick up on in the third place is just the power of community, but that in order to even access that community, you have to be able to be willing to share your story. Um, and it can be really hard to do that because, I mean, your tried and true partner, his, his knee jerk res response was that, no, like that's too, that's too vulnerable for me. How, how are we going to do that? And so not only does it take you getting through the layer of your tried and true partner, who's the one that's like in it with you, the most in it with you, you then have to be even more, uh, more courageous to move beyond that. And then what came on the flip side uh, ended up being a gift, but 
I just think of that, that risk when you're already in such a vulnerable spot. I mean, you're already having gone through two IVF treatments and now you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to like get myself together and go for a third. And then it sounds like not even that, but a fourth, like I just am in awe of the, not only the experience, but this balance between being really vulnerable and being courageous at the same time so that you can keep moving through something that, like you said, you, you know, the, the falling into fertility. Yeah. And I mean, our story had some similarities too. Like we, we had a stillbirth and all of these women came out to say, you know, in, in terms of miscarriage, Oh, me too, me too, me too. And then you see all the stats of how many pregnancies don't work, you know, that, that are successful in terms of being pregnant, but not coming to term. And there is this whole wave of people. And so it is that, like, how do we talk more openly about this so that we can invite those conversations in? Because unless it happens to you, there's no resource. And then it's like, everything's reactive. Um, I don't know where to find that balance between that tension. First of all, I'm so sorry that you had to experience that loss. I mean, that is, any loss is hard. I, I My heart is with you that you had to experience that. And sometimes as you mentioned, Mary, it's speaking up to be heard, be seen, and finding your tribe. And it doesn't always have to be that way. I mean, there are places and spaces that exist now that didn't exist when I was going through all of this in 2014, 15, and 16. The Instagram community is huge now in the fertility and fertility space. And it's pretty incredible, I have to say. So you can be as out there as you want to be or as hidden. There are a lot of people that have Instagram handles that aren't their name. They don't have their face. You know, they are looking to this particular community as a connection point to know that they're not alone. And that, again, didn't exist not that long ago. I think it takes going through certain parts of life. And for me, that was going through multiple rounds of IVF to realize that, again, for me, talking about this was not a weakness. It was a strength. It is a strength. It just took some de debunking of old beliefs that I had to get there. And it took me a while. But between that second and third IVF, I did some serious soul searching. I moved through all of the different stages I threw myself a huge pity party first. I'm not going to lie. And my reaction to pity parties for myself is after a while, okay, well, what can I do to fix it? And that's the other piece too. Like I, that was something else I really had to learn as well. Like there are certain things that can't be fixed, right? At work, there was no such thing as impossible. I felt like I could do it all. And so it was really hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that I couldn't will a pregnancy to happen I could do my part for me. And what that looked like was learning a lot more about myself and embracing the experience and realizing that I, I had a lot to learn about myself and I think I'm a better person from going through it because a better person, a better friend, a better spouse, a better family member, a better mom subsequently because I went through all of those things. And 
I think part of it too was looking at, at, at what my lifestyle was. Like, how can I, how can I be better? How can I feel better? And, and part of that was diet and nutrition. I took this program to become a health coach, not because I was going to go out and be a health coach to people, which interestingly enough, when I did eventually leave my job, everybody thought I was leaving to become a health coach. And that's great. Well, <laughs> you know, career for some, um, I, I wanted to learn about nutrition and diet and lifestyle because I wanted to do my part. And later on, I realized that I was actually creating not only a lifestyle, but I was treating the endometriosis I didn't even know that I had. I was just diagnosed with endometriosis about a year ago. So after having a successful pregnancy, right? I mean, I so your fourth IVF went well and um, my third. it was your third. Mm-hmm. So my third IVF after I took this break and got, I think, in a better headspace and, and really was taking care of myself. It was the first time in my life that I actually thought it was okay to be a little bit selfish. Mm. I, I didn't realize that I was bleeding from a stone and I was giving so much out that I really didn't have anything left. And then I realized somehow it, it dawned on me through all of this self-work that I could actually give more to others if I gave more to myself first. It was sort of this uh, you know, amazing epiphany that everyone talks about that I finally realized. And I thought, oh, so this is how you do it. And that was, that was, that was brilliant. And, um, my third IVF, I had switched doctors. As I mentioned, I was doing my part. I believe I had a doctor who was doing his part and I doubled the amount of eggs. I got two embryos, one viable, and she's now three. So that's my success story from that. And the, the lifestyle and the diet and all the, those things that I, acquired that I thought would be temporary became a lifestyle. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. And it also introduced me to this incredible community that was just starting at the time, not necessarily even in the social media space, because it really wasn't yet, but that there were other women and men that were going through all of this. And I felt like, wow, I'm not alone. Safety in numbers, so to speak. It's the hardest part was trying to find those people and then associating not just the stats to, you know, what they are on paper, but what they are in reality. And like, it, it's pretty empowering to, to feel like someone else gets you and sees you beyond your spouse. And just the, the spouse part is, or this partner part is really important. But I also needed to feel like I had a tribe and people who got me. And some of those people have become, strangely enough, some of my best friends. Like I could never have imagined that I would have had this incredible set of of new friends from it. And that community has really supported me, particularly um, in my fourth IVF, as we had just talked about a little bit. My fourth IVF. Um, started at the beginning of 2019 and we got a viable embryo from that particular round, that cycle. And at the end of the year, we had plans to transfer it. And that's when I found out through new technology that I have endometriosis. I had been unexplained for many years 
and there is a new test on the market called Receptiva. And it basically tests multiple things, including whether or not there is um, a potential protein for endometriosis, which I have. And so again, hindsight, 2020, we did the transfer at the beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic set in. And we deducted, when I say we, my doctor and I deducted that treating my endometriosis with a diet without realizing it had really helped curb a lot of the inflammation. It wasn't the reason why perhaps I got pregnant, but it was definitely helpful in, in getting there. We also realized that a surgery that I had had um, back when I was in my early twenties, an abdominal surgery that I had, I had um, like strangulated bowels, talk about uncomfortable. Um, they thought that was, that was associated with an appendectomy that I had when I was in like my, like, like 10, 11, 12. And everybody just chalked it up to that, left it. We never thought anything of it. We realized in retrospect that it was probably endometriosis because endometriosis really afflicts um, the abdominal area. It just is that endometriosis wasn't really taken seriously, like so many things in women's health until the last few years. So it's, it's just, it's amazing to me how the discussion is starting to evolve. And I believe that it's evolving because we are demanding that it is. Yeah. I just am. I'm, I find it fascinating that by being completely stripped down, uh, that's when you started to build back up. I feel like I'm hearing that you didn't even feel like at the time that you were going into this journey, though, that there was anything to sort of tend to. I loved that whole bleeding rock or bleeding stone saying. I had never heard that before. And I was just like, it's only in those moments like that that we sort of have to strip down and redefine. And that how interesting, too, that in that time, you finding the community that that ended up being, um, I would imagine you feel like was a catalyst to your successful third IVF a little bit too, or it contributed. I mean, I feel like there's so many factors, but I, I'm sure because it sounds like you think holistically that that was definitely one of them. I do believe that I was able to reconcile part of the guilt and the shame in going through that. And then later on, a different kind of guilt when I was going through my fourth IVF, because I felt like I already had one. And so who was I to do this again? And there were people out there that, that didn't have any children and I'm leaving people behind. And, and, and so, you know, so I had a bit of that survivor's guilt, if you will. Sure. And I believe that the community really helped me get beyond that. And that's just testament to, I think, the kind of impact that vulnerability really has. I think when you're truly vulnerable, you find connections that you otherwise wouldn't maybe have found. And in my case, I feel like those connections have, have truly you know, sustained me. I, I'm close to so many of these people because we've, we've bared our souls to each other, right? And going through this and had discussions that we didn't even know could exist, to be quite frank. Yeah. Well, and I think like some so many pieces of the journey for you 
were moments where you learned to become an, your own advocate with the medical community, right? So the, the first doctor told you a thing and then you had to like, well, I don't know about that. And then you went to a second one and then there was the ghosting thing. And eventually, like, not only did you find this community of people that could give you the support emotionally and all the other things in this holistic manner, but it sounds like part of the journey was you found the doctor who you could advocate against but all you know, and kind of work with, like there was some tension, and even in the in the Metriosa story, like I, I mean, maybe I'm bringing it up because we had to learn how to become our, our, an advocate. We had to learn to push back on the doctor. Why do you think that? Because maybe it's not this. And even between, we ended up seeing a fertility specialist, and between that person and the ROB, they're like, well, yeah, the fertility specialist does his thing. I mean, he's. He's super successful, so I guess we'll take his advice, but there's no medical uh, conclusion that his advice works. We're like, okay, you know, it was just was weird. It's like, and, and our OB is great. Like, we love them, but we had to learn how to be our own advocate. And so much sometimes, you know, this is uh, one of the common themes that comes up in this podcast for me is, you know, I come from a white male middle class American perspective and and we need to continue to invite so many additional perspectives in but that's a that's one of those micro moments for me where i realize how much privilege i have like we came into that conversation and certainly part of it's a journey but but i learned that i could fight back how many lower class people or people of color don't know that they can fight back against that professional opinion because it is just an opinion. Now it comes with a lot of education for sure. But so I, I just love that you've part of your journey was this advocacy for yourself, you t- the self care for yourself. And I think that that's an important kind of thing to just call out. So first of all, I really appreciate that you brought up the topic of advocacy because I, I didn't really pay any mind to what advocacy was prior to this experience. I really thought that advocacy was a term that I used in marketing. Okay. I'm looking for, you know, brand advocates, like (laughs) kidding me. Right. (laughs) So the advocacy piece is, is something that, again, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I think it is such an important tool. And I don't think that we give ourselves enough credit for it. I think that what happens is societally, we get these, stereotyped roles, right? The doctor is the person who has all of the medical expertise and he or she knows better than we do. So we have to listen and follow it step by step. Even if there's like this burning, like, you know, voice happening within that's saying that doesn't sound right. The time's not right. Don't do it. We sometimes suppress our own thoughts and ideas because we feel like this other person is is the expert and they know all of the things. And so what do we know? Because they do. And so we have to do what they say. And what I've learned in this process is that individually, we all know our bodies better than any other person ever could or will. Something doesn't feel right, it's more than okay to speak up. And you bring up a valid, a very valid point about marginalized communities that don't get 
support because they don't speak up or, you know, it's not their, it's not their fault. They just automatically have those built in assumptions like many of us do that the doctor is always right. And I think it, it comes more so, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a doctor's kid and I still felt that way with a fertility doctor. But if, if it had been a different doctor, I would have asked all the questions. For some reason with a fertility doctor, I, I rarely ask questions initially. The only reason I changed doctors and sought a second opinion was because I confided in my father and said, I don't know, this feels strange that, you know, this doctor wants me to have a surgery. And my dad said, don't go there. Let me do some more research and let me, you know, help you find someone else to talk to for that second opinion. Well, it's that whole, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, you didn't even know to ask questions because they're supposed to have the answers. And so what, how are you supposed to know what even questions to ask in the beginning? I can't even fathom. Right. And so I, I think that it goes back to, it's okay to not have all the answers. It, it doesn't make a person any less educated and, and, and to ask a question. If, if something doesn't feel right or there is a question, use your voice. And what I believe that self-advocacy has taught me is that I now have this deep-rooted interest and desire to advocate for others because of it. I needed to go through my own experience to be able to get there. And, and earlier on, you mentioned, Mary, you know, there's, there's this power in, in being vulnerable. Yes. But I believe it comes in time and in steps, right? So I think that just because you know, someone is going through something doesn't mean that they're not going to learn anymore or or um, or get empowered if they don't use their voice right away. I think that using your voice and sharing about it comes in time. And there are probably people that will never go there. And, and, and that's okay too. I think people need to really feel comfortable and perhaps passionate to a degree. Like this, this is something that I fell into. I didn't ever want to be branded as, you know, the girl who went through infertility. And I certainly wanted to forget about it. I, after having my first child, I went back to my job and thought, I put the blog on hold. I thought, oh, I'm just never going to go back to it. Cause I, you know, I figured it out. Are you kidding me? I could I, like so much trauma as a result of the experience came up after I had my daughter and it made me realize that, wow, it's not something that you ever lose or get rid of. And I, I was reminded of that yet again, when I tried for my fourth, which never worked out, unfortunately, even then it's, it's, it's always a learning and I believe that advocacy has truly, you know, helped me heal in a lot of ways. And I, I feel empowered by helping other people feel, feel empowered as well. So I think that when you talk about tools and resources and what to help others and, and give them, I think that first thing first is try to find a tribe, even if you're not ready to be active in it. And that could mean going on Instagram and creating a handle, you know, I like my eggs fertilized, which is probably 
<laughs> right? Like, it, which is a brilliant handle, right? Um, whatever the handle is, and and following along in the conversation and and talking to people and not having to reveal your fa- your face until you're you're ready, if you ever want to. I think that a lot of people are so taken by the community, they eventually come out. There are a lot of wonderful success stories and there are a lot of of not. But interestingly enough, I also think that having a baby or not can also be successful, right? I know plenty of women in the child-free land that are thriving and, and they are doing amazing things and they feel whole despite not being able to expand their families as they had originally intended. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's there's also that discussion of what success truly is. And I think that coming out of this, I think I want to be able to meet people where they are and support them where they're at and where they are today, maybe different than yesterday or tomorrow. And this journey has taught me or path or process or whatever you want to call it has taught me that the road isn't linear. Like this is not a linear path by any, by any stretch. And the definition of success depends on, on where you are. And that has been so huge for me. And, um, and another piece of advocacy, if people really want to take it to the next level is, working with Resolve. Resolve is an amazing organization that supports the the awareness and education of infertility. They have incredible, you know, stats and research available. Um, They also provide a platform to help others talk and lobby with Congress to support others in their family building, which again, I think we talked a little bit about privilege, David. I mean, how fortunate are we to be able to to actually have the opportunity to try? Right. And that's not the case for everyone. There are plenty of amazing people out there that would be amazing parents if they want to be that don't have the financial means to go through all of the, the cycles and the stuff and and that's why organizations like Resolve are so near and dear to my heart. And there are also incredible grant systems that are now available, like BabyQuest Grants, uh, Bundle of Joy Foundation, and several others that are, are actively, Fertility Within Reach, that are actively creating and putting together grants and supporting grants for the community and people who want to expand or try to expand their family. And I think it's so huge. Right. Yeah. And that cost, this is a separate but related conversation is, you know, adoption has tremendous costs associated with it too. I have a couple of friends that have only done that route by choice and it's very expensive. And that's, that's that other point of privilege that you're referring to. I know that there's going to be women that, and men who want to go deeper in this conversation. So, um, do you have connection to your work specifically? Absolutely. So my blog is called Fertilust.com, F-E-R-T-I-L-U-S-T.com. And I have an Instagram handle, which is exactly the same, and Facebook. I am building a collaborative 
currently that I'll launch later this year that will be supporting women and men and everybody in between um, in supporting their understanding and, and process to parenthood. And so what that looks like is a lot of awareness and education and basically all of the resources and tools and the things and the people and like the dream teams I wish I had when I first started out. So that that's basically what this brainchild is. And there are other resources too that I that aren't aren't mine that I just highly recommend. Um, Pregnantish is one. It's an amazing site that highlights the stories of people from all walks of lives um, and where they are and, and and how their journey to parenthood looks. Of whether it is, you know, whether it's a parenthood story or not. And um, Fertility IQ has incredible stats and research available. Uniquely Knitted is providing mental health services for the community. They're about to launch that. So currently they sell a really great box. So like, for example, if somebody has, um, if you don't know what to say to somebody, right, but you want to be supportive, a note is wonderful. Sending a box with a blanket and a candle and like a little note that says, I'm thinking of you is awesome. And Uniquely Knitted does that to fundraise for this mental health program that they're doing. So that's another group. And um, you mentioned adoption, David. Help Us Adopt is doing incredible things in the adoption space. And they're an incredible nonprofit. I have so many resources. I know. We're gonna, we'll put all of these. In our show notes for everyone and in our newsletter, because I'm, I was taking notes. I was like, this is amazing. Also, so Natalie and I are both on a community called Hey Mama online for working moms. And, um, and I reached out because one of, I mentioned my dear friend that's going through the IVF journey. And I said, what can I send her? I just have to send her something because, um, people didn't know what to do or didn't know how to do that. So I was like plugging into that side of it. Like I didn't know what to do in this, in this role, in this relationship with it. And I reached out and Natalie responded and said, um, here's some things that you can send. Here's some, you know, here's a box you could send. And uh, it, it brought my friend to tears and it was uh, so small. It was so easy. I mean, it was like, took me, 10 minutes. Right. And, um, especially with the, the sort of forced distance right now and, um, talk about the, the nervousness of even when you're trying to get pregnant and going through this and then adding on the pandemic and nervousness around getting ill during that, that process too. It was beyond words. And it felt like something that I really was, was proud to extend, even though it was just the tip of the iceberg. So that's actually how we connected just to give our listeners a little context. Well, I love that you both brought that up because for Beth, my wife, you know, we recently had the birth date of our stillborn and a couple of her closest friends just texted her, you know, happy birthday, Adam, we named him. And that meant so much. Not, of course, not every woman maybe wants that, but it was a, something small, didn't take a lot of energy, but it means a, the world to Beth. And and we have, I mean, hanging in our very front window is a little globe that has a feather inside and that was uh, given to us in that moment. And it's it's a treasure that we sh- we have. So those are the small things that those surrounding people going through infertility, 
we can be the tribe too. We can be the support for each other. And, and I love that part of the story. It's a beautiful way to honor a lost child. And, and I think that that's such an important stigma we also need to break down and address as well. I just recently started to even allow myself to mourn the loss of an embryo, right? And because before I was like, I don't have the right to do that because it's not as great as a miscarriage. It's not as great as a stillborn, but loss is loss. It's all loss and it all hurts. It all, the, the fact that you honor your son so deeply and beautifully and that your friends do too, means first of all, you have amazing friends. <laughs> and I think that that is such an incredible, like just beautiful thing to do. And, um, and, and that needs to be part of the discussion too, the loss and the grief and, and holding space for other people. I can't relate to having had a stillborn. I can sit with you and say, I am so sorry. And how can, not, not even how, I would like to honor your son by wishing him a happy birthday. I would like to honor your son by sending, you know, flowers to you and your wife on his birthday, whatever. I, I just think that there are beautiful ways that we, we can honor. And the more we talk about it, I think we give ourselves more of the license and the just permission to be able to do that. So we need to talk about this. So, and thank you for sharing with us. Yeah. And, and that speaks to just the active, not passive, you know, and, and it's almost like when you don't know what to do and it just feels awkward, you have the permission to ask like, Hey, I don't know what to do, but I want to love you. Can, can you help me walk through that? Because, um, you know, as friends, I think we just avoid the conversation sometimes because we just don't know. Well, let's just be honest if we don't know. So this conversation was just so great and i think we we did go to really deep and uncomfortable spaces which every time we do i'm like this is why this is really important because i think we just gain so much wisdom from from people and with with different life experiences different life perspectives and um you are certainly able to be a guide for our listeners and the guide of so many women um, and men going through similar experiences so thank you so much for being our guest and just thank you so much for your work in this world thank you so much for the work you're doing and for having me as your guest natalie it was such a treat thank you and be well <laughs>